Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. My family thinks I'm crazy. Podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with you. Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Matt? John Dee, court astronomer to Elizabeth I, who ushered in the age of imperialism through a magical act and utterance of a single phrase, the British Empire. Amidst engagements with angels and demons, Dee forged an act of God, provoking a vast movement across the world and the beginnings of the global machines, world wars, genocides, environmental destruction, and mass entrainment into the modern, turning our backs on the antiquated and doomed to repeat history. While many bask in ignorance, today's guest has broke the mold and excelled leagues ahead of his colleagues, writing over 35 books covering a vast array of subjects. You might not expect these topics from an Oxford-educated PhD, but our guest is cut from rare cloth, a polymath of sorts who studied the pipe organ from six years old up until college and to this day composes classical music for his friends and family all while continuing to write and publish his work. Dr. Joseph Farrell of GizaDeathStar.com joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks of Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this fantastic conversation with the great Dr. Joseph Farrell. I just don't believe the the quackademic narrative. And the quackademic narrative is that somewhere circa 4,000 or so BC, uh, if you follow Archbishop Usher's dating, which I don't incidentally, but somewhere circa 4,000 BC, we human beings all of a sudden started 
stop thinking that we we are going to be hunter gatherers and we invent civilizations just like that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't believe that narrative. I, I just don't. I think we have to take the narratives of those ancient civilizations about themselves much more seriously than we do. And and those narratives are all of a piece. We are we and our civilization are much older than the quackademic narrative would have it. We didn't stop hunting and gathering and all of a sudden decide to invent mathematics and calendars and domesticate animals. You know, <laughs> it just right. you know, it's it's a narrative that makes no sense. Because it cannot ultimately account for why you have civilizations like Sumer and Egypt to begin with. They're just all of a sudden there in the record. Now, civilizations don't just sprout. <laughs> you know, they don't. I'm sorry. We don't abandon teepees to start building pyramids. It doesn't happen that way. Uh, particularly pyramids that have the degree of engineering in them that we see in Egypt. It doesn't happen. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and with me today is a living legend, someone who's written more books than anyone else in this space. <laughs> At least, in my opinion, he is probably one of our best guests to have on the show, somebody who's written on a large, large variety of topics from the cosmic war to the secret space program and so many things in between. But today, Dr. Joseph P. Farrell joins me here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, hopefully to focus on Thrice Great Hermetica and the Janus Age, which I definitely recommend folks go and pick up. It's available on his website, GizaDeathStar.com. And to start, I guess, Doctor, I'd like to ask you where this book fits into the rest of your books, because I've heard you describe your work as sort of each book sort of lining up in a certain order and i'm wondering where this one fits in with the rest well it's it is true i i try and all my books are connected if if people sit down and read them they'll they'll quickly latch onto that but they're also designed to stand on their own uh they they were conceived in a particular order but you can read them in any order uh that book as far as i'm concerned was an attempt to try and um connect some dots between an ongoing kind of financial cosmology that you see beginning way back in, in Mesopotamia all the way up. That's basically been the paradigm all the way up to the present. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, stop and ask yourself this question. When was the last time that hu humanity 
or the bulk of the population of humanity lived under a financial system where money was not monetized debt. That's a long time. Goes back very far, yeah. It goes back very far. Now, we've been in this country under a mixed system. You know, I remember as a boy spending silver certificates. Well, you know, you don't find those anymore. I remember as a boy spending United States notes. You don't find those anymore. They're nothing but Federal Reserve notes. So it was designed, that book, to to kind of bridge the gap between that aspect of finance and also to bridge the gap between some physics interests of mine and also the occult and secret society aspects. So that book is really an important book. If you look at all of my books, it's a very important one because it's trying to tie those themes that you find in the other books together. Mm, Absolutely. And I, I will say, you know, before I ever listened to really any podcast, I found your books probably at Barnes and Noble or some used bookstore. And I didn't realize there was any order or, or and I'm grateful that you could, you don't have to read them in order because I synchronistically found them mm-hmm. in an order that was particular to me and what I was looking for. So in that sense, I think you've done a, a really beautiful service to this community, elevating the consciousness. And it's rare for someone with your pedigree of education to tackle these subjects with such precision. So, yeah, you know, no, no, <laughs> compliments and, and whatnot aside for now, it's just such a great opportunity to have you here on the show. So to, to pull... To pull forward through here, let's get into this topic because the beginning of this starts way back in Babylon, but it's safe to say that without these Venetians, we may not <laughs> have this going on, at least here in America, right? I mean, they, they play a very large role. Obviously, you wrote a, a whole book that focuses on them, but they are sort of behind the scenes with the Templars even as well. So mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. maybe we can we can start by discussing the difference between what we're known or what we know as the cover story for the Templars and what really happened. Well, the Templars, the story is, and it's it's actually an accurate story so far as it goes, but what what most people lack is the ability to to draw out the implications of the story. So let's look at the story. The Templars were a military crusading order, like the Knights Hospitaller, like the Teutonic Knights. They were they were one of the three big military crusading orders that arose in, in medieval Western Europe. After the schism between the Eastern and Western churches, the Templars built priories and so on all over Western Europe and later on in, in the Holy Land as well. And they became a close ally with the city-state of Venice. Okay. They did wage crusades, both in the Middle East, and, and the important thing that we need to remember is that the Templars were largely the ones responsible for the Reconquista in in Spain and bringing the the Spanish monarchy to power, and then of course ending the Moorish 
occupation and, and civilization in Spain. So the Templars were wildly successful in terms of some of their military operations. But let's look behind the scenes. What are the Templars? The Templars were given a special charter from the papacy itself. And this is really the first chink in the armor that you see, particularly in the in the Christian West, because up to this point, the the church had basically forbidden the lending of money at usury, at interest. Okay? Now, in the Byzantine Empire, the government itself could do that, but no one else could do that privately. What the Templars thus represent is the first attempt by the church to allow a corporate charter to a private group that would allow them to do this, in other words, allow them to bank. So they get this charter from the papacy, and this creates for the first time in in Western Europe since the fall of the Roman Empire. This is crucial to understand for people. It creates an organization that can transfer wealth intergenerationally. Now, an individual Templar was not allowed to own property, but the order itself could. So the order became fabulously wealthy. Now, on top of this, the Templars borrowed from Islam the idea of the note of hand. It was the ability to make a deposit in an institution, receive a an encoded note, like a check today, that you could take to another Templar priory all the way across Europe or in the Holy Land, present that note, and receive your money. Okay, so they invented a system of financial clearing that allowed them not only to accumulate wealth intergenerationally, but to transfer wealth from one place to another securely. All right, this is another huge revolution. Now, the reason that they ally with the Venetians is, of course, the Venetians are bankers. And the Venetians invent essentially the same system. They take the Templar system and employ it in Venice on the banks at the Rialto, where you have a banca discreta. So in other words, when you do business in Venice, you can simply deposit your money in a bank, and then you go to a merchant in Venice, you know, to, to draw on Shakespeare's play. You go to a merchant in Venice and you tell them that you've got so much money on account. Can I have so much barley and so on? You give that person a, a bill, a, a note, a bill of sale. That person can go to the bank and receive the money. And if that person happens to bank at a different bank than you do, that bank on the Rialto simply makes a ledger entry debit this account and credit that account and so on and so forth. So in other words, banking gets started. Now, the usual story is that Venice, because of this method of banking, which essentially is the bank system of banking we use today, the usual story is that Venice, because of this type of banking, invented double-entry accounting. Another, another one of those revolutions that they are typically, you know, in, in historiography, they're credited with. Well, my problem with that story, Mark, 
is that the Templars are doing the same thing on an international scale. So in other words, they would have had themselves to invent some form of accounting that would have let them do this, namely double entry accounting. So you've got this, this financial alliance, really, that, that starts between the Templars and Venice. And the way I look at it is Venice is kind of the military muscle for the Templars, or pardon me, the Templars are kind of the military muscle for Venice. And of course, Venice eventually starts its own military. But it's an alliance, basically, that, you know, we're seeing today. The, think of the Templars as the Ford Foundation with guns. <laughs> okay, that that's literally what they are. Right, and and you know, obviously, you can build a whole store of wealth just knowing these yeah. techniques, uh, banking, and having the ability to move these, you know, notes right. or pounds of of gold, silver, whatever, what have you, across Europe, making this network stronger and stronger. But it seems that wealth is not just limited to currency there was a sort of knowledge maybe of maps and of where treasure was that seemed to be kind of at least the most interesting right that's where a lot of the interest in templars comes from is this whole treasure thing but it's very serious because the fourth crusade was pretty much as you write you know planned by these Templars, and they they removed a lot of these holy objects, possibly, right? I mean, what were they what were they looking for? Well, what for? I think happened is is that this Templar Venetian alliance, uh, you know, this this to me is another another fabrication of history because at the time of the Fourth Crusade, the the Doja of Venice is, of course, Enrico Dandolo, the celebrated blind doja of Venice. Well, this guy literally leads the Fourth Crusade, which he arranged at the behest of some French knights. <laughs> okay? And, you know, the, that's the story. Well, substitute Templars for French knights. Okay, that's what's going on here. So the Fourth Crusade occurs, and Dandolo manages, according to the story, to divert the Fourth Crusade from Palestine to Constantinople, where he attacks his fellow Christians. Well, in my reading of of all of this, I don't think the Fourth Crusade was ever meant to end up in Palestine. I think the whole thing was a front to get a military operation against Constantinople from the outset. And the reason why is that it's after the Fourth Crusade that something very fishy, (laughs) you know, this is like a mackerel on a moonlit beach, folks. This one shines and stinks. So it's after the Fourth Crusade that Venice, the Zeno brothers in Venice, go on this voyage. They claim to go on this voyage to the northern Orkney Islands in Great Britain, and from there, they join up with the prince of the Orkney Islands and journey all the way across the Atlantic Ocean to the New World long before this is, you know, supposedly supposed to be happening with Christopher Columbus. All right. So what's going on? All right. When Venice conquers Constantinople, and this is both in Thrice Great Hermetica and in my book, um, The Financial Vipers of Venice. 
when Venice conquers Constantinople, they they establish a a fake Latin emperor in Constantinople. The Greek emperor goes across the straits, okay? So they establish a fake Latin empire. They they impose a Venetian governor on that part of the empire that Venice has conquered. And the governor's last name happens to be Zeno. <laughs> okay? So there you go right there. So the Zeno brothers managed to make it all the way across to the New World and then back, and then they publish this, this map. Well, if you look at the map, what it looks like to me is it's a map based on those medieval portal lands that are circulating secretly in Western Europe, one of which is, or several of which, I think, become the basis of the Piri Reis map, the, the uh, map of the Turkish admiral that shows the coast of Antarctica, some others of these maps eventually, I think, make their, their way into the hands of Christopher Columbus. So what's going on? What's going on is the Templars and Venice have gone to the New World looking for secret sources of gold, which they find with the Micmac Indians in Canada. Okay. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because at that time, Venice is is basically controlling the LIBOR rate of the day. You know, uh, Venice is controlling the bullion markets of, of Western Europe. And doing so by manipulating gold and silver exchange ratios. And they're doing it in a particularly nasty way. You know, if if you're in Florence, you're you're on the receiving end of this Venetian economic war. So they do all of this because they have a secret supply of gold. The jig is up when a Genoan, Venice's major competition is Genoa in Italy, a Genoan by the name of Cristoforo Colombo, we know who that is, uh, decides, okay, enough of this stuff. We're going to just open this all up. We're going to expose this secret supply of gold over here and i know just to who to do that by spain is handy and oh by the way we happen to know some templars that help spain get to be spain so you know all you have to do folks is read between the lines in the history books and you'll see what's going on read the history books of the middle ages like you read the modern american newspaper or watch modern American television networks. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I've even heard that the Genoese knew of the New World uh, for maybe a couple centuries before Columbus exposed it. I think it, right? all of those cities, Genoa and Venice particularly, mm. uh, it's very clear because you've got with the Genoese, you've got the Knights Hospitaller tied in with them. So, in other words, these military crusading orders plus the access to to secret maps from Constantinople, which in you know I've I, this is a very cons- complex scenario I've tried to construct. Oh, here goes my dog uh, through several books, but I think Constantinople becomes the home for these secret maps in the imperial archives, and they in turn are derived from exemplars that are brought to Constantinople from Alexandria. Mm. So in other words, uh, the other thing I'm trying to get across here for people is quit looking completely at the West. Get out of your heads that Europe means Western Europe. Mm. 
You've got the whole Byzantine Empire that survived until the 15th century, quite literally, which is yet another European Christian civilization altogether. And they have imperial archives literally going all the way back to the earliest days of the Roman Republic. So, in other words, there's there's all of this archival material sitting there in Constantinople, and the Byzantines are sitting on it precisely because, in my opinion, they know some of these traditions, that there's a whole other world over there. And once that happens, Byzantium's monopoly on the gold, silver, silk, you know, silk road trading route is broken. And Venice and, and Genoa get their hands on this, and that's when you really start to see the new world opening up long before Columbus makes his voyage. All that Columbus does is he stages a voyage to make the announcement. Hmm. Right. Let's remember what Queen Isabella says to Columbus. Sir, <laughs> it's almost as if you have been there before. She really said that. Wow. Yeah. Well, and it does seem like, as you say, you know, the Moorish peoples would have had knowledge, right, in, oh, sure. of this place. And I've even heard that they were sort of using the, port, the Straits of Gibraltar to keep anyone from Italy from going up towards the northern passage or even down towards the southern passage across yeah, the Atlantic yeah, that Ocean. Would, that would make sense. And, you know, once once the Moorish hold over Gibraltar is broken... And again, it's, it's largely the Templars that, that enable right. that whole reconquista. Once that happens, then you see this, this if, if you study the history of finances in, in medieval Europe and watch the money flows, you know, follow the money, what begins to happen? Well, Venice, this watch what happens, what, what Venice does. After the War of the League of Cambrai, Venice, which has been in bed, with the German banking family of Fugers, you know, the family that Luther rails about all the time, Venice has been in bed with, with the Fugers family. After the War of the League of Cambrai, they start to liquidate the public debt. Hmm. So, in other words, what that means is they're getting ready to move shop. Right. Where do they move? Well, the first step is, North of the Alps to the Fugers family, look up a German family by the name of Turin und Taxis, or the Italian name Della Toro, uh, Della Tasso e Toro. Okay, same family, just German and Italian versions of it. Uh, the Turin and Taxis family has a monopoly on the postage of the Holy Roman Empire, so they're swimming in money and they control the communications. So Venice, in other words, is liquidating its public debt so that they can move. Where do they move? They move to another swamp, Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah. So in other words, if you look at the history of what's going on here, Genoa has chosen Spain to be their vehicle by which they continue their, their banking merchant ways. Venice has chosen Holland as its next port of, of entry into the global trade. And, of course, eventually Amsterdam skips across the pond with William of Orange. And what does he immediately do? 
Well, golly gosh, he starts the Bank of England. Right. <laughs> you know? right. So off we're off and running here, folks. Right. So in a way, you look at this, you're you're watching a group of people, terribly powerful, wealthy people, who've created this mechanism for the intergenerational transfer of wealth. And what they've effectively done is they've set up a foundation called the Templars. And what's the foundation? Well, it's also a tax haven. <laughs> yeah. It's it's crystal clear. Couldn't be any clearer. Yeah. Well, and, and this starts to really crystallize, for me at least, why a lot of this New England, because I'm here in New England trying to piece this history together, a lot of it is ignored, specifically the archaeology. You, you oh, talk well, yeah. about the Westford Knight and the, yep. the Kensington Runestone, the Newport Tower. Yep. I've found others, some that I haven't seen in any books, you know, big, what look like megalithic stones being oh, I can believe it. Yeah. placed in positions that are, you know, aligned with the stars. And, you know, it really seems like they've gone great lengths to obfuscate any, you know, trace of a they are, advanced they have culture. They've been here. horribly successful of it. And I'll give you two examples. In a little town called Hevener, Oklahoma, okay, which is in southeastern Oklahoma, okay, there is what are what are called the Hevener Rune Stones. You can go to this place; it's a state park, and look at these Viking runes on this stone in Oklahoma. <laughs> okay, so yeah, somebody's over here <laughs> doing something, right. and on top of that, Thomas Jefferson, when he sends Lewis and Clark on their exploration journey gosh i wonder why he's doing that well one of the things that he he wants to do is he wants to find the 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 alleged uh blonde-haired blue-eyed indians the mandan indians because he's been reading all of these stories about the welsh having some sort of exploration on this continent long before Columbus. So again, you know, this this is kind of an open secret. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I wonder if it, it, you know, if there's another explanation for the secrecy. I mean, it seems like the banking in the United States is established in the Northeast for the most part. I mean, with you have like this East Coast establishment, specifically in cities like Boston, New York City, and even places like Hartford and New Haven, Connecticut, which New Haven, Connecticut itself not only donned a sort of Templar-like flag for its yep. colonial flag, but they designed their city in nine squares almost to, <laughs> you know, embody some sort of uh, esoteric truth there. And I'm curious because you, you make a point uh, about the nine knights of the Templars, mm -hmm. and, and I'm wondering where that symbology has expanded. Ultimately, that comes from Egypt. And the reason why is, I don't know if you're familiar with a Neoplatonic philosopher by the name of Plotinus. Hmm. Well, he's 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 the Neoplatonic philosopher. He's he's the guy that more or less is credited along with another fellow by the name of Ammonius Sakas that gets that whole tradition of Neoplatonism started. Well, Plotinus wrote a a treatise called the Aeneids, which if you study classical philosophy, 
chances are sooner or later you're going to have to cut your teeth on the Greek of that of that text. It's a fairly lengthy philosophical text. But what Plotinus is doing in that book is he's laying out for a Greek-speaking and reading audience. He's basically trying to summarize Egyptian mystery school teaching and philosophy. That's what he's doing. And, and therefore, the nines, the treatise Aeneids means the nines. That's quite literally what it means. So this is coming from Egypt, ultimately. And if you study, if you if you kind of do a comparative study of Plotinus, and I, I don't want to do it now, but if you do, you'll quickly discover that, that the things that he's talking about have direct parallels in Egyptian religion. Uh, the, the Plotinian doctrine of the one, for example, is, I think, a, a kind of a disguised version of, of the Egyptian idea of Mat. Hmm. And Mat, if you want to understand it, it's George Lucas's force in Star Wars. That's, that's all right. it is. Right. So, yeah, it's coming from, it's coming from Egypt and it's, it's coming out of an identifiable, um, if you will, an identifiable esoteric or metaphysical tradition. Yeah, yeah. And it, what even kind of expanded this idea, this, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to New Haven, but oh, Yale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So then you're probably familiar with Yale's, you know, sort of mm-hmm. Egyptian architecture, especially yep. the, the gate of the cemetery, the tombs, mm-hmm. and so on. But what struck me is that, there is a sort of syncretism at play with this Ashmoon character, right? And the, the Egyptian city of Ashmoon, which also had the name Hermopolis, uh, where they worship the sacred eight. I mean, you con- consider the fact that a nine square grid is made by eight roads. You sort of have this interplay of eight and nine going on in New Haven, not to mention in the center on the green, there is an eight octagonal fountain right this is a sort of flagpole so all of this kind of amounts to modern day el ashmoon here in new haven uh, with these sacred eight gods being kind of headed by toth right and he is obviously hermes and kind of connects to what we're talking about here today yeah i just sort of reciting facts at this point, I don't really have a a question, but I'd love to hear your comments on that. Well, I'm not, you know, I didn't spend that much time looking around New Haven. So most of the esoteric references that you're talking about are lost on me. However, that said, I'm not surprised because I did spend a little time walking through the Yale campus. In fact, I walked by the, the, the tomb for skull and bones just out of curiosity. And my impression of the place was, quite frankly, that the whole thing was creepy <laughs> because of all of these esoteric things that, like you say, that you see if you're paying attention. Mm. You know, and, and all I can tell people is is I had the same reaction to walking through the Yale campus as I have whenever I visit Swampington, D.C., which I try not to do. <laughs> Because the place creeps me out. Mm. (laughs) Right. It just really does. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. The anecdote there, I've been to D.C. myself only once and uh, had a similar feeling. I don't blame you. That was probably enough. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, moving on, it does feel like New Haven has a sort of place in this whole story, uh, 
particularly yeah. you write about in your book, The Brotherhood of the Bell, I believe, the SS mm-hmm. and the Brotherhood of the Bell. You, you mention Skull and Bones, which of course, you know, finds its home in Yale University. It's a sort of second chapter of a German organization that goes back to this German Illuminati. And we had a character in New Haven history named Jedediah Morse, who was one of the first uh, Americans to actually publicly make statements claiming there was an Illuminati at work. And Mm -hmm. it was sort of threatening this New England Calvinist power structure that they had going on up there. And, you know, people probably are aware of Washington's statements on that saying, oh, yeah, we welcomed it. Right. And he was sort of kind of tongue in cheek there. But but what do you think the, you know, the veracity of that is like maybe the Illuminati kind of invading the Ivy League through Yale. Do you think there's any truth there through? Um, I Wow. Yes, I do. Um you, you, that's a whole new Pandora's box. And I, I, I would love someday to just to sit down and, and do a scholarly study on the links between basically what's become a kind of secularized Calvinism in this country with, with the progressives. Um, it's basically it's basically a form of Christianity without Christ, um, and there are there are deep deep reasons. I, I wrote a book just to let people know. I wrote a series of four books, and they are intensely theological books about the doctrine, the change in doctrine that was that was made in the 4th and 5th centuries by the West's most famous saint, St. Augustine of Hippo. He changed literally everything. I'm Eastern Orthodox. So when I look at Calvinism, I see just another expression of, of Augustine of Hippo. And incidentally, it's because of his theological system that the two churches split. All right. So in other words, this is, this is a very, very deep, long story. But my point here is, is that there are aspects within Augustine's system that lend itself very easily to a kind of penetration operation or co-option operation by groups like the Illuminati. It's, It's very easily done. Let's remember that the Illuminati were founded basically by a Roman Catholic professor of canon law. (laughs) That's Adam Weishaupt. And he was, you know, he maintained his professorship all the while that he's, you know, starting all these conspiracies. And he recruits people from, you know, all over Europe. And there are reasons why a person in his position would be led to do something like that. And there are reasons why that that whole group would take off and become so influential and cross the channel and cross the ocean to the United States. Uh, if you look at if you look at the Bavarian Illuminati closely and carefully and look at their doctrine, it's particularly there that you see the prototypes of Karl Marx. You see the whole idea of using 
Freemasonic lodges as kind of fronts for a much more dangerous con- type of conspiracy. Um, you, you see all of this activity going on, and Calvinism, the kind of Calvinism that manages to get to places like Connecticut in this country, and then that Calvinism loses its religious aspect during, you know, during that period of the 19th century and all of the revivals that flood New York and all of that stuff going on. And it's also that Calvinism that's really kind of in a certain roundabout way. It's behind Abraham Lincoln. What does Lincoln do? Well, he brings over all these Germans to this country who are, coming out of the 1848 revolution and all of these Germans join, you know, join up in the union army and you read some of these guys and, you know, they're, they're nothing more than early Marxists. So you've got, you know, you've got these Marxist Republicans that are imbued with this secular Calvinistic philosophy on top of everything else, and they're off fighting those Anglican Southerners. You know? So, yeah, there's religious dimensions to all of this that, that are very profound. Anyway, I'm, I'm yammering and rattling on and on, but no, you know, that, that it's a, it's a, uh, the Calvinist thing in this country and the relationship with, with uh, those kinds of secret societies, I think is something that, uh, I can tell you from a scholarly point of view, it needs to be done. Uh, Anthony Sutton was probably the one that came the closest to to dealing with that whole hornet's nest, but um, I, I think it was too big even for him to, to try and contemplate biting off. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, a lot of what I've learned comes from him and the man who's published his work, Chris Milligan, and his book, Mm -hmm. Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, to your your point, it kind of compiles the views of several different people because it is quite a task. But yeah, I've, for the past 10 or so years, been fascinated with this as uh, I went to community college in New Haven. And during Mm -hmm. my time there, before I dropped out, I, I met a gentleman who moved all the way to New Haven from Arizona and he told oh me yeah of all the places to go That's a culture <laughs> right and he certainly did not fit in he stuck out like a sore thumb he, he was a Native American in fact and him and I met and we we just perchance met and he recognized something in me and began to tell me his story and he told me that he came to New Haven in a sort of spiritual mission to avenge Geronimo, not by going and breaking into the tomb and taking Good for him. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and, and I've sort of helped him along the way in a sense by, you know, carrying the torch and, and looking into this information further. But at that age, I was like, who's this crazy guy telling me that... <laughs> Geronimo's locked away in this tomb and in the tomb at skull and bones. Right. Well, and listen to this, because you stood on that very street. He would stand there every day at noon for a certain period of years, and he would stand in front of it at uh, the tomb at noon, and from the bottom of his his lungs, he would scream Geronimo's name, and his voice would just soar through the campus and. 
I had the the honor of of standing by while he did that one day, and it just stuck with me ever since. So there are people who are still haunted by that that sure. you know, in in a way. And I think Skull and Bones is kind of haunted by its reputation with all this. But it's it's really fascinating the nexus point that is Yale because, as you say, the Calvinist angle is you know yet to be you know fully parsed through. But you know when you look at so many of the ideas that have come from the Ivy League, particularly Yale's version mm-hmm. of the Ivy League, you have, you know, the foundation of the oil industry, you know, yes. turning, you know, oil into a workable resource. And then not to mention paleontology, which funny mm-hmm. enough kind of goes hand in glove with that whole subject, mm-hmm. considering they call them, you know, fossil fuels, right? So you have mm-hmm. this like interesting area of science that you know involves darwinian evolution and you know a lot of these ideas that are now starting to be questioned by the more forward-thinking conscious oriented scientists mm-hmm. or maybe even the more traditional religious scholars too who mm-hmm. say you know oh, dinosaurs never existed but either Got way in that camp <laughs> oh yeah well and well not not that dinosaurs never existed but i'm not a believer in fossil fuels and i never have been right and, and, you know, it was, it was a realization as a little boy, as a matter of fact, that there were not enough dinosaurs to make all this oil. Right. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a very simple realization, but you know, the, the problem, the problem with uh, this relationship that you see at Yale, I mean, the, the, the physical presence of this relationship is there and the relationship is what exactly is going on with this secularized Calvinism and these secret societies. Why, why the mix? And I, I really don't think that that, that aspect of things, yeah, we have books like fleshing out skull and bones, but we, we really need a book of, of a, a scholarly study of this whole secularized Calvinistic movement and its massive influence on American history. Hmm. And I would say predominantly deleterious influence on American history. Um, you, 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 you're opening such a Pandora's box here with that relationship. And I really don't think that since uh, Anthony Sutton, uh, I don't think we've had a scholar in this country that's been willing to go there. And, and, Part of the problem, I think, is due to the fact, and Sutton touches upon it, um, Carol Reese, or pardon me, uh, not Carol Reese, um, Renee Wormser, the the counsel for the Reese Committee in the House that was investigating foundations, uh, he did. And he even even very uh, explicitly mentions in his book, uh, Foundations, Their Power and Influence, he mentions the connection to the medieval military orders and the resemblance between the modern foundations and those those military orders. But I don't think other than people like that, that this is an aspect of, of American history that, that most people are even aware of. And it, it's definitely there. Um, mm. You know, the, the New England old money, you know, the Cabots, the Lodges, you know, we can name all the families. We're, they're very familiar to us in our history. But there's, there are deeper connections to all these. The Delanos, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the Delano family. Um, 
they have all of these these progressive Calvinistic uh, and secret society associations, and they're involved in some pretty nefarious activity, like it or not. Well, and it definitely, it seems to line up in their minds to some sort of justified means right. to an end, right? right? And and given where we started this conversation off with the Fourth Crusades and, and the mm-hmm. Templars' involvement in that, do you think there are parallels with, you know, presidents like Bush Sr. and Jr. and the oh, war absolutely. in the Middle East? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um the Bush family is one of my least favorite families. You know, they're, they're right at the bottom of my list folks. <laughs> but, um, I, just the fact that you have both father and son, uh, I call the son Bush, the stupid, uh, for your audience. That's not aware of my nicknames for these people. But, um, the fact that both the father and son, were were members of Skull and Bones, and the grandfather, the patriarch of the clan, Prescott Bush, also was a member of Skull and Bones, uh, with with his own dubious business dealings with Nazi Germany, <laughs> of all things. Uh, yeah, you're dealing you're dealing. I think again, Mark, with this uh, the secularization of, of Calvinism and what's one of the signs of election in Calvinism? Wealth. Wealth. So when you remove any remaining Christian moral component and you still have that system, then you'll do anything to, you know, achieve your status as one of the elect and gain, pardon me, gain lots of wealth by hook or by Pardon me, by crook. Uh, so yeah, the Bush fam family, and then you know the two thousand. Pardon me, I've got the hiccups. The two thousand four election, when you know Bush the stupid is running against Kerry. Uh, you know this is the skull and bones election. <laughs> you know both candidates are are bonesmen. Right. So you know what what what's the choice here? Um. I, I think American politics, because of this, is in a very, very nasty way because it's becoming it's becoming increasingly the politics of of one faction of the deep state versus another, uh, and and that's all it is. So, in other words, we're we're kind of watching a mafia. You know, I'm, this is another analog that I've used on on many interviews to try and convey to people the way it appears to me. And the way it appears to me is we're watching a mafia war. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and this extends even to other countries, right? I mean, yes. I heard you recently analyze the whole derailment situation. And oh. it's very interesting to think that that was a false flag in the making that got thwarted. I mean, from that perspective, uh, albeit the environmental damage, it is sort of, you know, relieving to find out that there <laughs> there are people thwarting that kind of effort. Uh, but if you don't mind maybe expanding on that a little bit. Now. Well, I, yeah, I, I was commenting, I think you're alluding to the fact that I, I was commenting on an article that appeared on Jeff Rance's website okay. that was written by a Japanese fellow that is alleging that the presence of phosgene gas in the burn-off means 
much more than we're dealing with just vinyl chloride leaks. In his opinion, we're dealing with the the preceptors of phosgene gas, actual mustard gas, World War One nasty stuff, uh, and that this was being transshipped to uh, a place in Pennsylvania, apparently some big marshalling yard that's just across the state line in Pennsylvania, uh, and then from there possibly to to Baltimore or some port on the East Coast for shipment to the Ukraine where they would then use it as a false flag chemical attack. See, the Russians are using mustard gas. And it's interesting to me because within two or three days after that article appeared on Rance's website, the the head of Russia's uh, atomic, biological, and chemical weapons defense actually came out and said, pretty much the same thing that Russia was worried about a false flag attack that would be blamed on the Russians using those types of weapons in the Ukraine. Now, Vladimir Putin has made it very clear that Russia's doctrine is no first use of those weapons. You know, he's, he's basically uh, told everybody that, that their military policy is not that insane. <laughs> and it isn't. It, it never has been. But, you know, we're such dopes in this country, and we think that Putin is some sort of neo-Stalin, uh, that, you know, we'll believe anything the lamestream propertainment media tells us. But, you know, it, it's insanity to think that they would do that. They don't need to do that to win the war in the Ukraine. They're doing fine enough job of that without atomic, biological, or chemical weapons. So, yeah, I, I think that there's a possibility that this Japanese gentleman was correct, that this may have been a latch-ditch effort to derail that train before it got to the marshalling yards and that that shipment was lost, you know, to barges or whatever. Um, that, may have been, that may have been the case. I give it about a, a 30-70 chance that that may have been the case. Uh, but as far as as far as factions within this so-called government doing something like that, they are just insane to do something like that. Yeah, it's fascinating, and and when it's described in this way, like a mafia, it does make sense why they're uh, okay with you know civilian casualties because exactly. you realize that they're they're just fronting you know this is yeah. a, this this whole deal of protecting us is just a front the man with the biggest stick uh, makes the rules in the, in the uh, words of teddy roosevelt uh, carry a big stick and speak softly and that seems like what they're they're doing is very quietly mm -hmm. behind the scenes clubbing each other over the head with big weapons mm -hmm. but this is an history repeating itself because as you've written at great length the religious sort of texts that were uncovered around the same period that uh, a lot of these egyptian buildings were being created over here in in the what 18th and 19th century united states in france and europe there was this sort of egypto craze because yep. of what was being uncovered down there in egypt and it turns out that yeah this is history repeating itself and the wars that we're seeing now over weapons you know mass destruction in the middle east have happened before, before. and maybe even involved 
such anomalous structures like the pyramids. I was recently speaking with a friend of mine, author Lauren W. Jeffries, who's written a book called The Sacred Count. And upon telling him I'd be interviewing you, he said, oh, Mark, you have to ask Dr. Joseph about the, and I have it written down just so I don't get the numbers wrong, the fifth. 54 stones missing from the Great Pyramid and the 27 empty slots in the, the Grand Gallery oh. Chamber. Well, I... <laughs> um, I, I, The very first series of books that I did in alternative research was, was a trilogy of books. Uh, the first one was called The Giza Death Star. The second was Giza Death Star Deployed. And the third one was Giza Death Star Destroyed. I have just, in this last month, come out with a fourth book because those three books went out of print. So I, the copyright reverted to me. I had a friend republish them in their original form so that the books would stay in print. I've written a fourth book to kind of make my hypothesis in those first three books clearer for people and to update it a bit. My hypothesis, to be very blunt, and, and not to take up much time with this subject, because, again, we'd be here all day, but my hypothesis is that the Great Pyramid was a weapon, and an extremely powerful weapon of mass destruction at that. Now, that puts me way off the end of the twig of high-octane speculation, okay? And I know that that sounds wild, incredible, absurd, crazy, wacky, and every other adjective you can, you can think of, and I realize that. But it's actually not my idea. The person who had the idea that and wrote a whole book about it in a kind of a roundabout way was Zechariah Sitchin. It's his idea. And when I read the book that he talks about it in, the book is The Wars of Gods and Men, I, I thought that, you know, that's such a strange idea. It's amazing that nobody has followed up on it. Now, at the time that I was reading that book, Chris Dunn came out with his book called The Giza Power Plant. Uh, and I, I had met Mr. Dunn at, at a couple of conferences. And, you know, I, I really think that that book is the paradigm changer as far as the pyramid is concerned. Because when you approach that structure as he does, he's an engineer, and he's a, a materials engineer on top of that, uh, a machinist, and so on and so forth. When you approach it with those kinds of spectacles and examine the structure, it becomes very clear that it was never intended nor built as a tomb. It was built as a machine. Uh, so that's what... That's what my books are about. So the 27 slots in the Grand Gallery, there's evenly spaced, as you go up the Grand Gallery, there's this little ledge about three feet above the floor of the Grand Gallery on both sides of the Grand Gallery as it ascends up to the antechamber and the king's chamber. 
Those 27 slots, Chris Dunn speculated, once held something. And what he thinks that they held were 27 banks of Helmholtz resonators. A Helmholtz resonator is simply a, a metal sphere with a hole in cutting in it so that when the air moves across the hole of the sphere, it produces a musical tone. So it's like a flute, okay? Uh, the only difference being the, the Helmholtz resonator has only one tone. So what he's speculating was that the acoustic properties of the Grand Gallery were the perfect place for these resonators. Think of, think of the Grand Gallery like I, I'm a pipe organist. That's the instrument I grew up as a boy playing. So I look at that thing, and I see a, a big organ pipe. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, it's, it's an acoustic chamber. It's a resonating chamber. And he thinks that it was filled with, with these Helmholtz resonators. I go a step further in my books and say I think that they were filled with a special kind of crystal that was both optically and acoustically resonant to certain frequencies. And the reason I, I think that the, those kinds of harmonics are implied is when you examine the actual dimensional measures of the structure itself, you see abundant, redundant harmonics of, of dimensions in that structure over and over and over and over. You know, it's like, it's like me sitting at the console of a big pipe organ and I'm looking at all these numbers on the stops. You know, I know exactly what's going on. So I'm looking at all these numbers and, and I'm thinking, oh, well, these are all harmonics of Egypt. So in other words, if you look at if you look at the dimensional analogs in the structure with an engineer's eye, again, you get a machine. Right. And now given the advanced nature of these pyramids in Egypt, do we have a sort of idea on where they relate to, let's say, for instance, the pyramids we see in Mesoamerica and, and possibly if the cultures were connected at all, was there a sort of, you know, were these, you know, weapons being used against each other or maybe they okay. were sort of weapons uh, in a contiguous an series? Question. An excellent question. Number one, hmm. I think the Great Pyramid is probably the oldest structure on the planet. Number two, I think it is sui generis. It's a thing unto itself. In other words, I don't think all other pyramids are weapons. Mm, okay. Okay. I think only that one is, and for the specific reason that it does have way beyond any other pyramidal structure in the world. It has nested harmonics and feedback loops that the only purpose of it could possibly have been to become a, a harmonic oscillator of any target in local space. So in other words, this is not a weapon that you point and aim. This is a weapon that you tune right. to aim. Okay. Huh. You tune it. That said, I do think, and I argue the case in another one of my books called grid of the gods, the subtitle of that is The Aftermath of the Cosmic War and the Physics of the Pyramid Peoples. Because we find these structures not only everywhere on the planet. We find them in Mesoamerica. We find them in Serbia. We find them in China. We find them in Mesopotamia. On and on it goes. 
But here's the problem. We also find them on Mars. We find them on Phobos. We've found obelisks on the moon. You know, so what the heck is going on on here, folks? And I suspect that what you're dealing with, and and I I even talk about all these other pyramids in the last book uh, that just came out this month, uh, the Giza Death Star Revisited. I think what's going on is that you're dealing with some group of people way back when that had essentially a, a very high and a very sophisticated physics. And what you're seeing on this planet with with the pyramids at Teotihuacan or in in Tikal in, in the Yucatan, what you're you're looking at is kind of a degraded legacy of a physics. And I get into all of that in Grid of the Gods. My speculation is once again, you're dealing with structures that for want of a better expression are are examples of a hyperdimensional physics. Uh, and there are reasons that I advance in those books for thinking that. So I'm not, I'm not trying to make this up. I'm, you know, I'm speculating admittedly, but I'm speculating hopefully on the basis of, of some sound, either scientific or mathematical principles. That mm. That's my hope. Uh, I'm writing a book right now, incidentally, that is yet another... <laughs> another layer in this onion and it's probably the most controversial layer and I'm not even going to tell you what it's, what it is because the book is going to have to come out for people to uh, to dive into that one um, there, there, there are more aspects to the story but I do think your um, your question is, is an excellent one and again just to clarify I, I think the Great Pyramid and the Great Pyramid alone is a weapon. Thank you. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that is excellent. And uh, considering the the chain of connection there, I, I guess this only backs up what you posit in this thrice great Hermetica, where we started here in this conversation, where mm-hmm. you cite sort of different Egyptian artifacts that have been found across. America. And, you know, there have been numerous authors who have taken a shot at maybe comparing the Native American cultures to this, you know, group or that group. But one of the more fascinating candidates out of that, you know, milieu is uh, Elias Boudinow, who was one of the congressional presidents, right, before the Continental Congress, before it became the official, you know, United States president. So he's one of those guys, the forgotten presidents. And he wrote a book called A Star in the West. Oh, you're talking about the real presidents before the Philadelphia Constitutional Coup Convention. Ah, yes. (laughs) Yes. The the pre-coup d'etat presidents. Right. All right. Go ahead. And he, he was in kind of good favor with a lot of the founding fathers. I think he was actually one of the signers, Uh Elias Boudinow. He wrote a book Mm -hmm. called A Star in the West that sort of claims that the Algonquins were the lost tribe of Israel and there was I didn't all these know that. That's interesting. Yeah, there's all these sort of things that they were looking at at that time to <laughs> to, you know, boast that claim and 
Even here in my home state, there's a stone up on a mountain in the northwest corner that has Hebrew inscriptions on it. And obviously, like many of these things, they go, oh, that's just a hoax. But they're still there to this day. And, you know, like the other archaeological sort of anomalies, they've been ignored. But there's this kind of case to be made that there's a very old lineage uh, with Native Americans. And and as you say in your book that we're talking about here, Thrice Great Hermes. There have been so many ventures to the New World before Columbus, for the most part by fishermen, but... I was recently speaking with a gentleman by the name of Ross Ben, who wrote a book called Great Mystery Philadelphia. And in that book, he cites the journey of a man named Abu Bakar II, who was an African king, sent, you know, something like 4,000 or 400 ships across the Atlantic using the Southern Passage. And mysteriously that kind of coincides with the appearance of certain cultures in South America. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you've looked into that at all, like the Olmecs I've, and yeah, I've looked into it, but only very briefly, mm-hmm. but enough to convince me since you mentioned the Olmecs, uh, you know, I defy anybody to look at those heads that they have found in, in Mesoamerica and tell me that they're not African. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's clear, right? And particularly if you if you examine some of the records in places like Timbuktu, there's something there's some sort of traffic going on between Africa and the New World, mm. and it's you know it's got nothing to do with Christopher Columbus, and you know there there are stories, uh, repeated stories over and over again of of people finding Egyptian art Egyptian artifacts in the American Southwest. Well, you know, what's Egypt doing there? There are Egyptian mummies in Egypt that are buried with cloth that have little uh, little seeds and so on of American tobacco. You know, how does that get there? <laughs> you know, right. uh, well, the obvious answer is somehow Egypt is conducting some sort of trade. Mm. You know, there, there's no other explanation. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, I... I'm not a modern American quackademic. I just don't believe the the quackademic narrative. And the quackademic narrative is that somewhere circa 4,000 or so B.C., uh, if you follow Archbishop Usher's dating, which I don't, incidentally, but somewhere circa 4,000 B.C., we human beings all of a sudden started... Uh, stop thinking that we we are going to be hunter gatherers and we invent civilization just like that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't believe that narrative. I, I just don't. I think we have to take the narratives of those ancient civilizations about themselves much more seriously than we do. Right. And and those narratives are all of a piece. We are we and our civilization are much older than the quackademic narrative would have it. We didn't stop hunting and gathering and all of a sudden decide to invent mathematics and calendars and domesticate animals. You know, know, it's, it's a narrative that makes no sense because it cannot ultimately account for why you have civilizations like Sumer and Egypt to begin with. They're just all of a sudden there in the record. Now, civilizations don't just sprout 
<laughs> you know, they don't. I'm sorry. We don't abandon teepees to start building pyramids. It doesn't happen that way. Uh, particularly pyramids that have the degree of engineering in them that we see in Egypt. Doesn't happen. Right. So it's coming from somewhere. And since you mentioned Olmecs and the strangeness of, of finding all of these African artifacts in Mesoamerica, let's, let's talk about the Zulus for a moment in Southern Africa. And again, this is just one little detail, but it's the black swan detail. The Zulu tribe has part as part of its lore that they came here from Mars and that they came here get this on what they call Amerkaba a boat <laughs> okay now what is the Hebrew word Merkaba doing squatting in the middle of a Zulu tribal legend Wow. You know, so on and on it goes. You know, how how many anomalies do do we in the alternative community have to pile up before the quackademic narrative propagated by such universities as Yale <laughs> collapse? How many? How many does it take? You know, it's 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 my version of the question that we ought to be asking the progressives. How much progress is enough? They don't have an answer. And the reason they don't have an answer is it's the technique of progress itself that they're really all about and the main maintenance of power. That's all it's about. Mm -hmm. And speaking of progress, it almost seems futile given that history tells us, as you've been citing, that there's sort of a de-evolution right. from an advanced state to this. I mean, in the medieval, what we're told about the medieval period, at least from the Renaissance perspective, it was utter chaos, right? And No, it wasn't that at all. <laughs> I mean, how, you know, come on, folks. The, the Middle Ages were not the Dark Ages. Right. You know, people like Thomas Aquinas or Albert the Great are not stupid people. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, and it seems like what they were describing is really what we're heading for is the dark yeah. ages. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's yeah, it's, 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 we're heading for something far darker than the middle ages ever were or ever dreamed about being. Yeah. Um, but, but the problem, the problem with the, with, with the modern view is I think you're absolutely right. In a certain sense, we have become so accustomed to this secularized Calvinistic idea of progress that we can't see devolution if it came up and slapped us in the face. You know, the way I, the way I look at, at Egypt is, is exactly the way that Alan Alford looked at it in that the oldest level of construction at Egypt namely the Great Pyramid itself, was also the highest level of perfection. Then you had a slight decline in quality that you see evident in the Sphinx or the Valley Temples or the second big pyramid at Egypt, the Pyramid of Sephirin. Uh, and then you had another period of further decline, a third layer of construction that began with Egypt itself. And you had the red and the bent pyramids at Dasher 
And it's very interesting when you look at those pyramids, those are, in Alford's opinion, the oldest actually Egyptian pyramids built by Egyptians. And they are of the highest quality. Go to other truly Egyptian pyramids and they're falling apart. Oftentimes you can't tell them apart from a mound of sand. So in other words, construction quality devolved. In my thinking, Mark, what you had happen, the reason for the devolution was they fought a big war with that weapon, blew up a planet. Yeah, Star Wars happened right here in this solar system eons ago. What's the asteroid belt? It's an exploded planet. It's exactly what it is. And that's exactly what the 19th century astronomers thought it was. It was an exploded planet. By the way, those 19th century astronomers, guess what they named that planet? Krypton. <laughs> wow. Getting the picture? Yeah. Somebody knows something. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. Given we were just talking to Chris Knowles about his book, Our Gods Wear Spandex, which deals with <laughs> Superman and all those characters. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, wow. Very fascinating. Now, given... What we're looking at here with this sort of, you know, encoded truth about this planet's destruction, do you think, oh, I, had a, I had a question loaded up. Give me a second and it'll come back sure. to me. Oh, the bloodlines. So mm -hmm. let me rephrase this. So given what we know about the pyramids, you write that there are certain people within the Rex Deuce sort of, or this is a theory. I don't know if this is mm -hmm. your, you believe in this or not, but you're, you're citing this theory about mm -hmm. how the bloodline is somehow connected to the use of this technology and that only yes. certain people, depending on their DNA, can even interact with the pyramid technology. Uh, that, that is my impression. I wrote another book, uh, in this whole series of books called The Cosmic War. Um, the subtitle of that book is, is probably worth mentioning. The subtitle is Interplanetary Warfare, Modern Physics, and Ancient Texts. And one of the things that emerges, it's one of those obvious things that you don't think about unless you, you know, you stop to think about it. One of the things that emerges in all of those ancient texts, be they, you know, the Greek texts about the, the war with the giants or the Mesopotamian texts, you know, and the wars between Marduk and Tiamat, doesn't matter. Uh, one of the things that emerges from these texts is that the people wielding these weapons have to be either in close physical proximity to them or actually touching them. So what that suggested to me at the time I was doing the Cosmic War, and I should qualify this because of the book I'm writing now, at the time I was doing the Cosmic War, I was not laying down all the cards in my hand. I'll get back to that in a moment. But if you look at these texts, the thing that, that is an obvious thing is that these gods, whoever they were, 
that are fighting each other either are in close proximity to the weapons they're using or they are actually in physical contact with them. So that suggested to me that there's a biometric component to them. If nothing else, a biometric component that, so to speak, unlocks them and permits their use, like, you know, a simple matter of a retinal scan. Okay. Now, when I when I originally wrote the first book, this is the part that um, people have to understand, and and I mean it very seriously. I've I've planned these books out, oftentimes years ahead of actually writing them. So when I did the Giza Death Star, I I purposely told the publisher I have more books in mind about this if this one does well, and it did, and so I started writing the other books. Um, and that's why all the books are interlocked. <laughs> you just have to read them, and you'll find out that they are all interlocked very tightly. When I did the original Giza Death Star book, if you've read my books, I, I love epigraphs at the beginning of chapters. And in the original book, I put in an epigraph in that original book, I sent, bundled up the book and sent it off to a publisher. And while I'm waiting for the publisher, I continue to crunch my numbers. I love to crunch numbers. So in the meantime, the publisher I originally sent the book to sent it back to me, rejected, don't want it. And I thought, what, what a lucky strike because now I can include all these <laughs> numbers that I've just crunched. So I rewrote the book, and I took out one epigraph in the book. And the reason I took it out, Mark, was I thought, having crushed more numbers, I thought, no, I don't even want to dangle this out there because I will have to write about it, and there's not enough to write about it at this stage. So I've been hinting around this epigraph and what it implies ever since the cosmic war. When I redid the new pyramid book, Giza Death Star Revisited, I've you can go on my website and people will tell you, I've warned them, I've restored that epigraph. I'm not going to tell you folks what it is because you guys are going to spot it immediately. And sure enough, one of my friends, Walter Bosley, has spotted the epigraph. Okay. Um, the epigraph has to do also with this component of, of biometrics. But it has to do with that component in a very roundabout way that most people wouldn't think of. Okay? I, I, that's, that's a hint. That's a rare hint. I never give hints on programs, but that's a hint. <laughs> Wow. Well, we appreciate it here on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. and uh, They'll really think you're crazy <laughs> if you show up this interview. Well, let me tell you this, a little anecdote. That guy is a crackpot, Mark. <laughs> don't, don't get him on again. I think I actually brought your, your book, Jeans, Giants, Monsters, and Men, to a, a Thanksgiving one year. Uh, oh, dear. <laughs> and I I was reading it on the, the couch while others were watching football, and... Uh, <laughs> 
just one glance at the cover and people what were like, the cover? Yeah, I was just thinking that people were like, Oh yeah, let's just let Mark read. We're not going to get into a conversation about this now, but yeah, they, they're well aware of, of my odd interests and you're, you're right at home. Given the name of the show, do you have, uh, do you have that same thing going oh, yeah. on that same yeah. dynamic with your family? Well, most of my family, yeah, I've, they thought I they thought I was nuts long before I started writing about all this stuff. Oh, so yeah. yeah, yeah, this just confirms it for them. Right, right. <laughs> That's exactly how my family feels about the name of this show. So yeah, they <laughs> they listen from time to time to support. I I don't think they retain any of the information, but they listen. So, but uh, <laughs> speaking of families, these these families are it, that we've. You know, talked a little bit about today, uh, specifically the Zenos and other interesting folks. They have a very, you know, well-documented uh, sort of lineage, right? right? But there's a person that you mention in this book where the opposite is true, and that would be the very famous William Shakespeare, who you spend uh, uh-huh. some time talking about. And there's been, you know, all sorts of claims on who Shakespeare really was from Francis Bacon to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, well, since I don't have any other examples, you posited maybe Edward de Vere, the Earl de Vere. of Oxford, Oxford. Oxford. And I'm curious to know, you know, A, where does Shakespeare fit into this whole sort of paradigm with the secret societies? Because it seems mm-hmm. relevant. And B, mm-hmm. oh, why do you think it's De Vere? Well, I think it's De Vere largely on the basis of Mark Anderson's book, uh, Shakespeare by Any Other Name, which lays out the De Vere case. Um, I you're talking to somebody that was a Baconian in the seventh grade. <laughs> okay. So since I've been in the seventh grade, I've, I've been in, on this, uh, not so much an anti Shakespeare kick, but that Shakespeare couldn't possibly have written these plays. <laughs> and, and, you know, Bacon certainly would have been capable of doing it as would have been Edward de Vere. Um, and I'm not opposed to the idea that maybe both men had their hands in certain plays or maybe even collaborated. Who knows? <laughs> but but um, my principal reason for, for thinking this is if you look at certain plays, uh, one of my favorite being one that's not really considered one of Shakespeare's best, and that's Henry, Henry VIII. When you look at some of his plays, like the historical plays, or plays like The Merchant of Venice that I talk about a great deal in Thrice Great Hermetica, you're dealing with someone whose depth of knowledge of things, be it a a historical tidbit that could not possibly have come from a middle-class man from Stratford on Avon, but somebody who's part of the establishment of the day, you know, stop, stop and think of all the little tidbits that are dropped in Henry the eighth or Henry the fifth, you know, some of those political plays or stop and think of the allusions to occult doctrine and practice in the tempest 
or stop and think of, you know, I, I went into a great deal of, of explanation in Thrice Great Hermetica of the underlying structure of the Merchant of Venice, which, according to one scholar, appears to be nothing but a representation of the Kabbalistic Sephirot, the, the Tree of Life from Kabbalah, in the way that the characters are actually related to each other. When you put them all together, they resemble the connections of the Sephirot and the Kabbalah. So you you can't get somebody like a William Shakespeare from Stratford-on-Avon that has knows anything about the Sephirotic Tree of Life in the Kabbalah. You know, that just that's it's just not going to be the kind of book that's sold at your local pub or your local chemist. It just isn't, especially at that time. So, yeah, I, I think you have to look at some of these references in, in the Shakespearean output and conclude that whoever's writing these things was a very well-connected, highly educated uh, individual who also had a very thorough knowledge on aspects of esoteric or occult practice at the time. Uh, you know, think of think of whoever the real Shakespeare is in terms of of. Spencer and the Fairy Queen, because again, you're dealing you're dealing in that particular uh, poem with a heavily esoteric work. Uh, think of think of whoever the real Shakespeare was as as a Percy Shelley, if you've read Shelley's poems, with all of their deep allusions to esoteric doctrines. Uh, you're dealing with that kind of individual, a William Shakespeare that can barely write his name. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Mm. Well, and and do you think that in the same way Columbus kind of merely took the the rap for you know opening up the new world for the public consumption, even though it had been privately known about for centuries? Do you think Shakespeare plays that same role with esoterica, kind of seeding it into yes. the public consciousness, and then you see seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth century progressively more and more is unveiled to the point yes. where now we're living in a sort of occultic world. Uh, yes, I do. And and Christopher Columbus, I, I spent a great deal of time with him uh, in this connection in in that book because it it there is a case to be made that he's the son of Pope Innocent the, the Eighth. <laughs> okay, uh, Chibo is is the family name of, of Pope Innocent the Eighth, uh, and. Again, when you're dealing when you're dealing with with the Renaissance popes, you're dealing primarily with people that have at some point a very heavy esoteric interest. Think of the Borgias. Uh, think even of of the De Medici's in Florence. You're dealing with people that have you know, Cosimo de Medici is the man responsible for finding the Hermetica, and having it translated. And again, where does he find it? Well, he finds it in Constantinople. So, you know, please don't forget about us folks over in Eastern Europe, because that's part of the story. Um, Cosimo de' Medici is another one of these figures, like, like many of the Renaissance popes, that 
are up to their earlobes with esoteric involvement. Um, and like I say, I think there are deep-seated theological reasons that you find this going on in the West uh, and not the East. You know, if you look at modern-day Russia, if you look at Putin's Russia, it's it's going in exactly the opposite direction. They're building churches and mosques and synagogues in the former Soviet Union at a breathtaking pace. <laughs> I mean, and they're doing it with government money. So, you know, something something is happening in Russia that is exactly the opposite of what we see going on in the West. And I, I do think that you've got, with the Shakespeare's and, and the Chibos and Christopher Columbus and so on, I think you have a group of people that have been more or less kind of staging these theater events as you say, to seed certain concepts into the culture. Because we still view, in spite of all the mountains of evidence to the contrary, we still view Columbus as, quote-unquote, the discoverer of the new world. Why? Well, that was the role that was intended for him. They had to create a narradime, as the word I used to... to uh, for a combination narrative and paradigm. They had to create a narradigm uh, for people to latch on to yeah. uh, and drive these concepts into society. Absolutely, yeah. And we see this even uh, back to New Haven with one yeah. of the tallest buildings in Knights of Columbus, yeah. right? And yeah. I, I'm sure they have a whole sort of story. Uh, <laughs> do, do you know anything about their their sort of uh, founding and, and how they came I to I don't be? know enough about the Knights of Columbus um, other than it always kind of impressed me that this was, this was uh, the papal response to the desire of Roman Catholics to join a lodge. Mm, right. <laughs> you know, that, that was... That's always the way it struck me. However, the fact that they're named Knights of Columbus makes me extremely suspicious as to what may really be going on, particularly if you buy buy the hypothesis that Columbus was an illegitimate son of Pope Innocent VIII. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> what else do we want? Yeah. Wow, it's fascinating. And on the point of the church, maybe not the Catholic church, but circling back to our talk about the pyramid and its mm -hmm. harmonic nature, we have this mm -hmm. same thing going on with cathedrals, specifically, oh, yes. you know, Rennes-le-Chateau, uh, and possibly that even encodes some Templar secrets. But do you think, <laughs> <laughs> you think this falls in the same line of trying to Wait mimic... Wait a minute! <laughs> Correct me, please. <laughs> Wait a minute, Mark. We're missing the big one here. <laughs> Tell me. The Rosetta Stone. Ah. Okay. Yeah. Now, we all know the story. The story is that the Rosetta Stone was translated by the French linguist Champollion, okay, after it was discovered in Egypt during Napoleon Bonaparte's expedition to Egypt. Now, stop right there. Napoleon Bonaparte in Egypt. What? 
what the dickens is, is Napoleon Bonaparte doing in Egypt? Well, he took basically all of France's intelligentsia and half of the French Navy and an army with him to Egypt. By the way, stopping off at Malta along the along the way, which should set off a few alarm bells. He makes it to Egypt, defeats the Ottoman Mameluk army there, becomes master of Egypt, and then spends a night inside the Great Pyramid in the king's chamber, emerges the next day, according to the story, ashen. (laughs) And this is a guy that doesn't scare that easily, folks. Emerges from the Great Pyramid ashen and never talks about it, apparently, and allegedly until the end of his life. (laughs) And on top of all of this, here it comes, folks. The fellow who discovers the Rosetta Stone, do you know what his family name is? Oatpool. Now, that name should ring a bell. Because if you're really familiar with the story of Baron Garçonnier and Rennes-le-Chateau, the Oatpool family is hugely involved with the story. Uh, okay. So we have a Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, a Napoleon Bonaparte, Rosetta Stone, Oatpool, Rennes-le-Chateau connection here to Egypt. And on top of this, if, if you really if you really want to go back to cathedrals now, when Baron Garçonnier, or Sonnier, pardon me, d- makes whatever that weird discovery was that made him fabulously wealthy overnight, <laughs> what's the first thing he does? Well, according to the story, he goes to his local bishop. This is just a poor French village priest, after all. <laughs> who found something, and the bishop says, well, um, I don't know what to do with this, so I'm sending you to Paris, which he does, and he sends him to the church of Saint-Sulpice de Paris, okay? And Berengar, after his trip to Saint-Sulpice, comes back to Rennes-le-Chateau, spends massive amounts of money that no one really knows where he's getting it from. One of the Habsburg Dukes, by the way, just happens to be passing through that (laughs) that village, visits Baron Garçonnier. So what's going on here? Well, the Church of Saint-Sulpice de Paris is a classical-era church. It's not a Gothic cathedral. It's a huge church. It's also the church that was picked for the Paris Prime Meridian during the Revolution. In fact, the the film version of Dan Brown's novel, where they show the Prime Meridian, takes place in the Church of Saint-Sulpice. That really is Saint-Sulpice that's being used for Saint-Sulpice in the movie. It is, in my opinion, a heavily alchemical building because Saint-Sulpice is also the headquarters, the the nerve center, so to speak, for all sorts of liberal Catholicism in late 19th century France. 
including royalist monarchists, restoration, conspiracy, secret societies, and on and on we could go. Uh, being a pipe organist, Saint-Sulpice is a particular favorite of mine because the famous French organ builder, Cavier Cole, built his largest <laughs> pipe organ at Saint-Sulpice. It was the the church that was the headquarters of one of my favorite composers, Charles-Marie Vidor, who incidentally was the instructor of Albert Schweitzer. So in other words, you're not dealing with a fly-by-night organist, very famous French organ virtuoso and composer. So something's going on at Saint-Sulpice. And one of the clearest indicators that this is all connected somehow is the fact that many of these 19th century French alchemical secret societies had their headquarters in or around Saint-Sulpice. Baron Garçonnier goes there. So there's something going on in this church that that nobody knows uh, why it's so significant. You know, the Ile-de-France, uh, the Ile-de-Cité is, is the island that Notre-Dame sits on. So why Saint-Sulpice? You, you would have thought that with Notre-Dame being quite literally the center of the French nation, that all of these societies would be clustered there. Why Saint-Sulpice? Nobody knows. I don't know. But wow. they are, they are, I think, alchemical buildings. Now, considering the placement, the very, very, very specific placement of the Great Pyramid, do you think mm -hmm. it could be a similar explanation there? Oh, I'm ab I, listen, I am absolutely, uh, and I cover this in, in my pyramid books, and, and I, I, I cover it again in the one I'm finishing up now. Um, I'm absolutely four square agreed with those people in the alternative research community that have made the case that the ancient prime meridian ran right through the apex of the Great Pyramid. Mm. And the reason I think that, uh, the most well-known reason is that if you look at the surface landmass of the globe, the Scottish astronomer royal, Piazzi Smythe, when he studied the Great Pyramid, he, he actually included a little diagram in his book that shows the location of the Great Pyramid is almost in the exact geographical center of the landmass surface of the planet. Right. Okay. The other reason being, and there's a fellow way back um, in the 80s and 90s, I think he's dead now, uh, by the name of Carl Monk, that worked out all of the mathematics of the so-called world grid, but the mathematics only works for places like Angkor Wat or Teotihuacan, places like this. The mathematics only works if Giza is the prime meridian. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, um, what that's telling me is that that used to be kind of uh, a seat of government. For the planet, mm. so it was more of a political necessity to to have your French prime meridian, and then now we have the Greenwich prime meridian uh, after the you know United Kingdom kind of had its day in the yeah. sun. Right. Yeah, wow. Right. Right. Now, 
considering that France was the sort of uh, nexus of the Templars, there is another connection between the uh, New Haven area and France, and Chris Milligan actually mentions it in the book here, uh, and he sort of uh, remarked at the eerie architecture at Yale, and it reminded him of the Saint Denis Basilica uh, near Paris. Saint Denis. Saint Denis. Yeah, and and I'm curious if there's any uh, lore about that area and its connection to these sort of esoteric practices. Saint Denis. Oh yeah. Um, if you, I don't know if you've ever read Saint Denis of Paris. Um, first of all, he's named after Dionysius the Areopagite that is referred to in the book of Acts. Uh, and there there was or is a body of work in, in patristic Christian literature that purports to be by Dionysius the Areopagite. Most scholars think that this body of work uh, represents a style of Greek that is much later than anyone writing, you know, uh, the kind of keeny Greek that was used at, at the time of St. Paul or, or Christ. So they usually refer to this figure as pseudo-Dionysius. But in any case, that Dionysius or pseudo-Dionysius wrote three theological treatises. Uh, one is called The Divine Names. The next one is called The Celestial Hierarchies, all about angels. Uh, and then the third one is called the mystical theology. Now, Saint-Denis, or Denis of Paris, is named after this guy that's writing these treatises. And St. Denis of Paris is, if you, if you look for his treatise, what he is doing is he's basically laying kind of the philosophical groundwork for the Gothic style, and in particular, laying the groundwork for rose windows and stained glass and all of that. Because if you look at his theological writings, what he talks about constantly is light. You know, he's, he's all about light. So many people attribute the Gothic style and, and the philosophical influences behind it to St. Denis of Paris. So he's a very significant figure. So yeah, uh, it's not surprising that Saint Denis, Saint Denis de Paris would be, you know, a place where you're going to encounter a lot of this alchemy. Because again, uh, I, I'm one of those that thinks there's something alchemical going on in, in stained glass, uh, that they knew something that, that we've lost. Yeah. In terms of their art. Now, to to whet the whistle a little bit for people being a pipe organist you know um there there is nothing at all in the world of music i don't care who you're talking about and what rock star and what guitar riff there is nothing in the world of music that can compare to the feeling that you get when you are playing one of those instruments in 
one of those large church buildings or listening to one of those instruments. Nothing like it in the world. And the reason why is in with a pipe organ, unlike any other musical instrument, guitars, violins, pianos, whatever, with a pipe organ, you're sitting inside the sound box. The instrument is not external to you. It literally vibrates the whole building and, you know, the foundations. It's an enormously powerful instrument. If you don't believe me, go get a hold of uh, Gaston Littes performing the last movement of Saint-Saëns' organ symphony on an organ that is absolutely blasting the whole orchestra right out of the building. <laughs> it's just incredible work. Now, the reason I mention all of this with cathedrals is I've had a suspicion for some time that there is a hyperdimensional physics aspect for why they're putting these enormous instruments in these gigantic buildings. Well, if you look at a Western cathedral, they're built in a cruciform pattern, okay? That pattern is a three-dimensional representation of what's called a tesseract, which is a hypercube. And a hypercube is, is like a cathedral, but in four dimensions, okay? So in other words, the central arm of the cathedral would be kind of sticking up at perpendicular angles to the two arms of the cross, okay? You've got the two arms coming out. What I'm saying that a tesseract is, is there would be two more arms right where the cross intersects. There would be two arms coming out perpendicular to that, that whole structure. That's a tesseract. So in other words, by their very geometry, cathedrals are analogs of something in four spatial dimensions, now you add vibration to that picture where you're literally vibrating the building. And now you're dealing with a hyperdimensional physical effect. So, yeah, there's something, I think, of a very mysterious nature going on in these, in these cathedrals in, in the West, particularly the big Gothic ones because they appear to me to be designed to, just like the pyramid, designed to oscillate and, and resonate with certain frequencies that are ultimately tied to the earth itself. You know, if you're, if you're playing a pipe organ, you are, you're vibrating that whole building, and that whole building in turn is setting up a waveform in, in the surface of the planet. Uh, it's powerful stuff. And if you're familiar with cymatics, you know, the, the Japanese guy that experimented with water molecules and sound waves, then, you know, what are we? We're, we're big sacks of water. And you've got this musical instrument that's, you know, shaking the building. So what's it doing to you? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, could a, a Carillion work in a similar manner? Uh, one thing I learned is that Yale has a bell Carillion in one oh, of their Carolyn. towers. Yeah, yeah. Carillion. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. I thought you meant the Carillion photography. No, Carillion, yes. Any 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 system of harmonics, I think, is, is dealing, particularly, you know, harmonic music, is dealing with uh, a physics of waveforms. Mm. Uh all, all a pipe organ is is an analog synthesizer. That's all it is. It's a wave mixer. Right. 
Um, so yeah, any any musical instrument is going to to have harmonic effects. I think we're only beginning to understand. I think by the same token that composers up until the end of the 18th century, they were working with a very different cosmology than than composers after that point. I think that composers up to that point uh, at least were aware of techniques in music that they could use, and they did use them, and they used them consciously in order to manipulate certain in intellectual and and emotional effects uh they did this thing constantly mm. it's absolutely fascinating to think you could find yourself inside of an instrument like that and as you described the tesseract i can think of a dozen different examples of where i've seen this symbol one for instance is at the red cross headquarters here in connecticut they have a yep. giant tesseract sort of they have red. A representation of a tesseract yeah, yeah. Yeah, very fascinating. The, the cross at Henday that uh, mm. Jay Widener wrote a book about yeah. is another. It's another three-dimensional representation of a tesseract. Wow. And speaking of which, you know, we're talking, we're talking about actual mathematics here, folks. Uh, this is a book about this kind of higher-dimensional mathematics written by the man who did it. Uh, so it's it's very real stuff. Uh, is we're not making this stuff up. Um, and I think personally, Mark, that, that when you're, when you're talking about this kind of higher dimensional, um, physics or whatever, I think you're talking about harmonics ultimately, because that's what activates it. That's what taps into that stuff. Mm. That's why, that's why we have such strong reactions you know, to our favorite piece of music or whatever. Uh, music music is very much a part of this way of thinking. Right. Uh, it's absolutely a very, very important part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great part of uh, this book that we have talked so much about, Thrice Great Hermetica. And there's just so much more <laughs> in this book that we just couldn't get to naturally. So still, folks, please go and check this out. Um but I know we don't have that much more time here, so I want to be careful with my, my questions. I could ask you so many more. I initially brought up saying uh, Saint-Denis because uh, is is he the one who was decapitated and carried his head around town, or is that someone who maybe— now, I don't know enough of the story about his life. I think you may be correct, but I, I hesitate in saying absolutely for sure. Because there's, there's this connection with the Templars and St. John mm -hmm. the Baptist and his head, which possibly was used as some mm -hmm. sort of oracle or uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. But, you know, I ask this because obviously Skull and Bones has this same preoccupation of collecting skulls in their tomb there. So mm -hmm. is there any alchemical significance to this? Do you think maybe they use these skulls as gauntlets or just as, you know, <laughs> you know, crystal balls i mean what what is the extent uh, ultimately, of ultimately and i did not say this in thrice great hermetica um i think by that time the templars are let me put it this way i think by that time the templars have kind of lost the original reason for their preoccupation with what becomes their head mm. okay 
In other words, it started out one thing and ended up something else. Right. Okay. I think what starts it is the Shroud of Turin, quite frankly. In other words, it's it's a relic that they were able at some point to get their hands on. And that relic, if you if you study the history of the Shroud of Turin, prior to its discovery, when you look at iconography, ancient iconography of Christ, he's depicted in all sorts of ways. After the discovery of the Shroud of Turin, which in in the Greek church is called the Holy Napkin or the Mandelion, and the records go back to about the 5th century when we see the first mention in a post-New Testament writing of this particular burial shroud of Christ, all right? It's after the discovery of that relic that you see the iconography of Christ begin to resemble the face on the Shroud of Turin. So in other words, it's very clear that the Shroud itself is much older than the Middle Ages because it has an effect on Christian art, okay? That's what I think is at the core of the Templars' obsession with heads. They are simply venerating an icon. They're venerating a relic. That's all it was. I think by the time you get to Philippe Lebel and the Inquisition, that there are Templar lodges that have somehow lost the original focus and may be literally venerating a head, a skull, or something like that. Um, you know, humans are humans, and, and these types of things happen. And I think there's a good possibility that this happened to the Templars. And I do not rule out the possibility that some Templar lodges may have veered off into just outright occult practice and abandoned uh, any any pretense to Christian orthodoxy. I, I don't discount that either. But my point here being that I think you have to be very careful in looking at the Templars as a monolithic organization. Um they're no more monolithic than, than modern-day masonry is. Um, you know, you've got all types. You've got different emphases from lodge to lodge, and I think you're dealing with much the same phenomenon with the Templars. About, uh, about the only monolithic institutions that managed to preserve, at least at that time, managed to preserve some semblance of institutional conformity is is the church itself. And even there... Uh, you're dealing with an institution that that has to recognize different emphases and so on, even in its own piety. Otherwise, you wouldn't have all these religious orders springing up mm. during the Middle Ages. Right. Well said. Thank you so much for mm -hmm. venturing with me down these uh, various sectors of, of history that have been, you know, largely ignored, but uh, brought forth here in your many great books. And, you know, given that you've written so many, my final question for you before we wrap up is what keeps you motivated to keep writing new books? Obviously you have multiple books still in down the pipeline, right? I mean, what, what's, what's, well, actually I took over the last two years, I kind of took time off. Mm -hmm. Um, this year I'm back I'm back in the writing uh, of books. Um, basically, I'm 
I guess I'm one of these people that, that looks at a subject and likes to circle around it several times and turn it upside down. And, you know, I, uh, there's a certain amount of repetition in my books, but the repetition is never exactly the same because I'm looking at something from a slightly different point of view. So I like to consider all the implications, all the alternatives. So I keep writing, you know, that that's why I do it. Uh, and in things like, um, in things like the pyramid, you know, research changes. Uh, when I wrote the original pyramid books, for example, it had not yet been proven that Colonel Weiss forged those hieroglyphics that supposedly contained the Khufu cartouche in the relieving chambers of the Great Pyramid. It was strongly suspected by some in the alternative community that he had. But in the last five years, someone proved it. Okay? So that's a case where I had to update things. Uh, we have now a new chamber that has been found in the Great Pyramid. They've sent a little probe down that chamber to show people what it looks like. I mentioned it briefly in the new pyramid book. Uh, I have a blog coming up this Wednesday that will talk about this new chamber. Um, I don't think it changes any aspect at all of Chris Dunn's or my hypothesis. However, that said, I think Egyptology would be just desperate enough to concoct another hoax and another forgery with respect to it. I really do. Somebody wants to keep that structure firmly dated to the 4th century B.C. and firmly in the hands of Khufu. <laughs> Somebody. Um, so you have to update things. That's just the way things are. Mm. Well, I give thanks because very few, very few have written at the level that you've written and at the, the length well, and depth. So, I mean, I, I think you deserve a, a great big thanks from this community for all the work you've put in and, and sort of well, uh, validating these subjects because, you know, if, if it weren't for scholars like you, all, all of our families would think we're nuts. So uh, little well, by little. It, it's interesting you mentioned that because when I started down this path years ago, I, I had no idea that it was going to turn into a full-time career. I had not the slightest clue. But I did intend at the outset that, by golly, if I'm going to write about this stuff, I'm going to do it in an academic style and with as much fidelity to, to academic standards of, of documentation and referencing as I can. Um, so people have to be warned that my books are very heavily footnoted. Um, uh, you know, they're going to put, they're going to put a, an epitaph on my gravestone. He lived for footnotes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what it's going to read. Oh gosh. Well, rightly so that your, your epitaph has a, as a footnote, but yeah, that's, <laughs> that's probably will. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Well, Doctor, you have so many books available for folks, and it's really great uh, to hear that you're re, uh, you know, resurrecting those books that went out of print. Um, but folks can go to Giza, GizaDeathStar.com. Uh, 
is there anything else you'd like to promote before we wrap up? Obviously, you have some new books in the works. Thanks for having me on, Mark. I appreciate it. Right on. Well, folks, please go over and support Dr. Farrell on line or by tuning into a podcast like this and wherever you are immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now all right and that is our long-awaited legend of a guest wow dr joseph farrell here on the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast and i couldn't be happier the conversation went really well and uh, i look forward to speaking with him again of course if you're already uh familiar with dr farrell you know he is the man behind giza death star and he's written so many books, uh, six or seven of which I personally have uh, in print. And his books are not hard to come by. He's written so many of them. I guarantee if you go to your local uh, Barnes & Noble, if you have one of those uh, retail bookstores, you'll probably see a couple of his books, one or two, on the shelf. And if not, you know, ask for it because I'm sure it's very easy. But why not just go to the man himself, go and check out GizaDeathStar.com. You can find links to all of his books, and you can even join his members-only community where he does uh, video streams, and you can see exclusive interviews. He also has a podcast called News and Views from the Nefarium, uh, and that is a really cool podcast where Dr. Joseph... Uh, does a sort of, uh, you know, weekly, bi-monthly report, uh, whatever he finds interesting that's going on in the world. So, yeah, great stuff from Dr. Farrell. And I'll say, you know, I've been very, very busy over the past few weeks uh, putting together a bunch of great interviews like this one and also uh, creating and producing and directing Uh, For the first time, a totally unique podcast series. It's more of a historical narrative series, Uh, not like this podcast where it's just a laid-back question-and-answer conversation. Uh, This is sort of different conversations and narrations spliced into one episode, and I plan on putting together a whole season of episodes. I already have the the arc written out if you'd like to see that you can sign up on substack or patreon to get some access to behind the scenes content as well as tune in to the very first episode of strange new haven the order of skull and bones uh, tentatively titled that I, I may may change it but i think that's you know the best i can do without shot straying away from the subject matter too much you know so uh, strange new haven skull and bones it's not limited to just skull and bones we're looking at the entire history of the western empire and how a group like skull and bones could even form in the first place and i'm having a really good time putting it together and i'm really proud of this first episode so please go and support on patreon or substack and you can listen to the very first episode featuring yours truly and a bunch of other guests that you have heard on this show some you may not have heard of 
before. So uh, I'm excited for folks to get a load of that. And uh, yeah, please let me know what you think. Uh, Obviously, you can support the show through Substack or Patreon to access the majority of the bonus content. But we also sell merch. We've got our one-time donation uh, ways of supporting the show, whether it's crypto or cash app or venmo or what have you you can also support the show through our ko-fi store and pick up some of the handmade jewelry uh, created by yours truly right here mystic mark that's actually where that name came from i i didn't just call myself mystic mark because uh because of the podcast and i definitely don't call myself mystic mark to make myself feel different from other people uh it was a sort of branding opportunity when i was selling my uh my crystals you know and i've always had a sort of different uh persona sort of a black sheep people usually used to look at me and think i was sort of a hippie and i i really disliked being called a hippie mark And instead of going around selling my crystals and it's like, oh, hippie marks crystals, you know, I I said, no, 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 I'm a mystic mark because I've always had a mystical outlook on life, Uh, you know, all the while not always following uh, conventional mystics path. Right. So that's where mystic marks, mystic mark comes from. I don't typically like to, you know, tell people to introduce me that way. Uh, unless they they choose to on their own I don't like say oh by the way make sure you call me mystic mark you know sometimes when you go on podcasts as a guest they'll say oh would do you want me to call you mystic mark or or just mark and I'll just say oh just call me mark you know because I'm not trying to to feel like uh you know I'm somebody uh you know that's like i don't know otherworldly i guess i i think mystical implies like it could also imply like someone who's psychic right which i'm intuitive but i definitely don't you know give like tarot card readings or anything like that i think everybody's psychic maybe you know i'm a little more tuned in to my psychic senses but yeah i don't i don't call myself a mystic uh as like a a gimmick and i don't call myself a mystic as like a as just like a mere like uh costume that i'm putting on like i i i live my life uh by this sort of way of being so yeah that's that's what all i'll say about mystic mark and uh yeah we gotta give a big shout out to the hit kit my friend garrett who makes these really incredible devices that you can use to keep your weed safe and sound, whether you're rolling up joints or uh, you're rolling up a dutchie, you're rolling up a blunt, you know, whatever you roll up, you can throw it in the in the hit kit right there next to your lighter. They go in two different compartments. Some hit kits have, you know, one compartment, two compartments, three compartments for your joints or your blunts or whatever. Uh, and they always have that lighter compartment. It's really cool because the lighter doesn't even have to leave the hit kit to use it. That's right. You just go and click it, get lit, take a hit, and you're soaring with the hit kit. So, yeah, check it out. We've got the promo code CRAZY. Make sure you use that promo code at checkout. And let's Garrett know that he is spending his money wisely on this show uh, to promote 
his awesome product. And uh, I know a bunch of people have been supporting because when I talked about one of his designs with the Hermes Thrice Great on it, uh, that same week, a bunch of uh, products with that design on it sold. So if you like weird, interesting stuff like that, go and check out the Hit Kit. Number one way to get lit. I have a Hit Kit stash box that has the uh, Hollow Earth map on it, which is super cool. Um, so anyways, and actually, Garrett was just on our Zoom party that we did for uh, March 22nd. I know I've said I'm going to do more Zoom meetups and whatnot, and I've been really busy with all this Skull and Bones research and uh, local history research, and I figured why not combine those two things. So we did a virtual tour using Google Earth via Zoom. So if you're interested in something like that, sign up on Patreon or Substack, and uh, next month I'm going to do it again. We'll do a virtual tour of New Haven, and you guys can sit in and ask questions, you know, and for folks who maybe live far away, you know, never going to come over to this part of the country, um, this could be a good opportunity to see something new and, and take that information with you into your own backyard as you examine all the strange things that you may find in your surroundings. So with that, I'll start to wrap this up. Be on the lookout for another edition of The Scene. I've written two booklets and a third is on the way. This one is titled Aesthetic uh, or Ascetic. And yeah, that's all I'll say for now. Uh, but it's it's different than the first two editions of The Scene. And I like the way this is coming together. I think I'm going to... Like I said initially, put one out each season. I did one for uh, the um, summer. I did one for last fall. And uh, I skipped the winter, or I guess, or maybe kind of worked on this during, over the winter. And yeah, so I guess this will be the culmination of this winter season. Although it's a little late, right? Are we, are we in spring yet? No, actually, I don't think the first day of spring has begun right first day of spring is this year is when i gotta get a better calendar they don't have that listed on this calendar anyways shout out to the hit kit shout out to all the supporters of the show the links are in the description if you're wondering oh mark i tried to find you on patreon but you know i couldn't find you don't try to type in my family thinks i'm crazy on patreon that's not going to help. The way that Patreon makes my show uh, available is by the URL. And if you notice, the Patreon URL is MFTIC, the acronym for My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, because that word is 20, or that phrase, the title of this podcast is, I think, something like 21 or 22 characters long. So we couldn't fit that into the Patreon URL. So I had to title the Patreon, patreon.com slash MFTIC. So if you use the search bar to search for a new podcast or whatever in Patreon, instead of typing in my family thinks I'm crazy and being like, oh no, they're shadow banning Mark, just type in MFTIC and I guarantee it will come up. And if not, well, then guess what? We're being shadow banned. And uh, you can always just go and look at the link in the description. 
Whether you listen on Apple, Spotify, Podcast Addict, whatever you listen to the podcast on, there is a paragraph of text that I write for each episode, and it's somewhere in there in your app. Depending on whatever app you use, for me, it's pretty obvious. Podcast Addict makes it super obvious where the episode description is, but I don't know. Maybe for some people, it's harder to see because of the app they're using. So that's why I'm going to take a little bit more time to explain this stuff in the outro because I've been getting some concerning messages like, hey, you know, oh, you're shadow banned here. And, you know, no shade to any of these people. They're very kind and uh, I really appreciate them, uh, you know, speaking up and letting me know about this so I can address it. So, yeah, shout out to uh, that individual who uh, recently signed up for the Patreon. Shout out to Ron. And, uh, yeah, that's it, folks. That's it for this episode. Thank you for being here. Go check out Dr. Joseph Farrell, thegizadeathstar.com. And, of course, if you were signed up on Patreon or Substack, you could have listened to this episode three days ago because we release every episode on the podcast uh, early for supporters only. So what are you waiting for? Immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. MFTIC. Yeah. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface. They want you confused, like you never knew your purpose. Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine. My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen. Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body. DNA fractal, the universe within me. Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati. Puppet masters know the power of the mantra. Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya. Subliminal messages hijacking. Perception tricking the population with holographic projections. We see through it. The system is unraveling. I'm astral traveling through the library of the Vatican on a sacred journey. I embark with the squad for a spitting truth like Mark on the pod. Gotta know the facts, never hold back. Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap. I dissect the fabric of reality, looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy. You might be feeling stressed out. Depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. You don't even know how powerful you are. We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade. I awoke in a deep underground military base. Zero recollection of how I got to this place. Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders must have been extracted when they crashed into us. Animal hybrids contained in the cages. A lion with the eagle head, monkeys with reptilian faces Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft, my getaway I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out, rob him for his plasma gun Hop in the ship, take the controls They highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light Fly into the sky, get flanked by six F-35s Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.